Hello and welcome to another episode of Imagining Freedom, which is focused on our rights and freedoms. Last year, I attended a few protests against the lockdown and two of those protests were held at Holyrood in Edinburgh, where the Scottish Parliament is based. And at those protests, those two protests, my banner said, stop the COVID protection racket. And I had little graphics of gangsters on that banner. The press seemed to like it. Well, at least twice I was photographed holding my banner in the press. My opinion of COVID-19 being a protection racket certainly hasn't changed. For those of you who might not understand what a protection racket is, it's when gangsters go round to people's homes maybe or businesses in certain parts of the world and they'll say, look, we'll protect you if you pay us. But people are effectively paying for protection from the gangsters themselves. And that protection is to stop their gangsters going and trashing their homes or their businesses. So why would I relate this to COVID? Well, it's not to be taken 100% literally, but I do think that there's something of the protection racket in this whole thing. And that is not to say that COVID doesn't exist. I've always said all along that COVID does exist and it's a potentially unpleasant potentially fatal disease and I know people who have had it. I've always treated it seriously but where I differ from the mainstream is that I don't believe that lockdown is the answer to this and I've said this all along. In my first podcast, I'm pretty sure it was the first, if it wasn't it was the second or maybe in both of those, I mentioned Professor David L. Katz who wrote in the New York Times I think it was in March 2020, he wrote an excellent article basically saying that we should focus our efforts to combat this disease on the most vulnerable people, on the old and the people who might have underlying conditions, and that the rest of us maybe could actually build up our resistance to COVID. That's certainly something that I agree with. But the whole atmosphere around this disease has been so hysterical and manipulative, in my opinion. I find it really difficult to read headlines. You know, I sometimes saw headlines in newspapers when I was in the shops. I thought they were really fear-mongering and it just made my blood boil. And the same with the BBC. If I caught the BBC news, I just had to turn it off because I thought it was really ramping up the fear. And I do think this is, this is a dangerous way to deal with something like this, in my opinion. First of all, enforced lockdown. I think enforced lockdown is wrong for any disease. Enforced lockdown, I think, is just wrong. And the reason is that once you've got the government enforcing this kind of thing, which is a real, I think it really crosses a line and it opens things up to corruption I think that if the threat's serious enough, people will stay in their homes if that seems to be a solution. And certainly back in March when lockdown was imposed, I think most people were absolutely terrified. And I personally wasn't. I saw things differently. But because people were so freaked out, I think I said in my first po- the podcast as well, um, I didn't want to have the arrogance to say that I knew best anyway. So I thought, well, I'll give this the benefit of the doubt. So yeah, whether the government had enforced it or not, I was happy to go along with the lockdown for the first few weeks. And then 
more and more I could see, personally speaking, I thought that things were just being twisted and the facts were being twisted. And I felt that the authorities were playing on people's fears as well and manipulating the narrative for certain ends. I believe that this has actually been the case. I believe that time has shown that there is massive corruption going on under the name of COVID-19. And again, that is not to say that COVID-19 doesn't exist or is not a threat. The whole, the whole COVID-19 issue has been used to manipulate people into getting a vaccine as if that's the only way forward. And not saying that people shouldn't have a vaccine. I would see it as a choice. It should be a choice whether people want to take a vaccine if there is one or when whether they want to treat it in other ways. And there's a whole range of other ways that you could treat COVID. But the vaccine is the one that's been pushed on us. And it, I do think it's very similar to the way that drug pushers behave, except it's big pharmaceutical drug push pushers. I've taken part in two COVID research studies one is the Zoe COVID research study. It's an app on your phone and they were asking people to answer some questions regularly. I think it was every day. And I did that for about two or three months. And the only reason I stopped was because I felt that the, the questions were becoming more and more intrusive. And because of the whole atmosphere around COVID with track and trace, etc., I just wasn't happy to continue with it. But I did, you know, I'm, I'm happy to help scientific research. The other research study that I took part in was UK Biobank. And I've actually been taking part in on and off in UK Biobank since I think it was 2009 that I started, that I signed up for it. And most of the tests that they've asked me to take part in have been sort of cognitive tests. Last year, they invited people who had signed up to UK Biobank to participate in this COVID-19 test whereby you had to have a blood test or take your own blood test every month. So I was happy to do that. And it's been very interesting, actually. When I started participating in the UK Biobank research, the COVID research study, I didn't have any idea whether the results would be released or how quickly they'd be released. And I did get the impression that I wouldn't find out my own results. And I wasn't interested in that anyway. Yeah, so the, the results of the UK Biobank SARS-CoV-2 serology study were released a few weeks ago, February the, the 3rd, 2021, and they showed that 8.8% of the UK population had been infected by COVID by December 2020, and that only 5.5% of the Scottish population had been infected with COVID. And that seemed to be very similar to the results from, from Sweden because when I looked at worldometers.com it said that 600,000 people in Sweden had been infected with COVID and that equates to 5.7% of their population. So every time I look at the figures, whatever figures there are, it seems that lockdown doesn't seem to have made much difference. Most people in Britain have less than 1% chance of dying from COVID-19. In fact, I just did some just some quick stats based on the world, worldometer.com total figures of deaths in the UK. 
and it showed that the total people, the total percentage of the UK population who have died from COVID so far, equates to zero point one eight percent of the population, and the total percentage of Sweden's population who have died from COVID so far is zero point one two percent. And of course, every death is a tragedy, although we are all going to die eventually. None of us are going to get out of here alive. And it's just putting the whole thing into perspective. I don't want to get bogged down with looking at figures because that might detract from the fact that I think that enforced lockdown is fundamentally wrong because it goes against natural law. We were put on this planet and we should be allowed to use this planet. We should be allowed to breathe the air as well. But I also think that even if you were to say, okay, there are some some circumstances in which people should be forced to stay indoors, I think that opens up the authorities to corruption. And this is exactly what has been happening. There are a whole number of reasons why I would never consider taking the COVID vaccine And it's certainly not because I'm an anti-vaxxer. The last time I had vaccines was in 2015 when I travelled to Costa Rica. I went to the doctor and said, which vaccines do I need? And then I just rolled up my sleeve. I didn't even think about it. But A, I don't see any reason to have a vaccine for this. I don't think it's a big enough threat, personally speaking. I don't think it will protect others from me, certainly. But even if it was going to, I still would not want this vaccine because I don't think it's been fully tested. Well, I know it hasn't. I mean, I know from reading reading the MHRA papers that it hasn't been fully tested. I think that any with any vaccine, you're putting yourself at risk. And this one is particularly an unnecessary risk, in my opinion. But overall, I think there's too much big money at stake. And that is what is a real turnoff for me. Right from the start, I think there's been big money interests in this whole thing. And I just don't think that mixing health and big money is a good idea, especially when it's concerning something that's going to go directly into your bloodstream. I've always been a big supporter of the NHS, although that's I've begun to question that slightly recently because of what's happening. But I do think that probably... 95% of the people who work in the NHS do a brilliant job and I've had certainly have had a lot of direct experience from myself when I was a tiny child and with close family members. But the way that the NHS has been changing over the last few years has been very concerning, especially NHS England, because we've been having a lot of these boards, governing boards, And I'm not sure if this is a source of the issue, but there's certainly been a lot of big money interests. I think the first time I really noticed this was back in the 1990s when PFI contracts started to be a thing. That was the public finance initiative. And it was really public-private partnerships. It seemed as if the hospital funding was was being done by a kind of mortgage system. A private company would take on the running of a hospital, and then the taxpayers would be paying them over a long period of time. It would be a big loan or something. And it all seemed very much open to corruption. In fact, there was a hospital in Scotland, the Monklands Hospital, and there was such an outcry outcry about it that the PFI, I think, was reversed. I can't even remember what happened. There were several cases of hospitals in Scotland 
where there was a huge public outcry because these contracts were being given out, but the public was not getting a good deal. And this is just one aspect of how a public service can be open to big money interests and potential corruption because it's the people who decide who's going, where the money's going to go. They can be swayed, they can be handpicked. At the moment, it seems to be happening with the BBC. The BBC is famously a public body. I mean, it's, it's still partially funded by the licence fee. But the current director general of the BBC, who was appointed in September 2020, he comes from a marketing background. He's for, the former marketing chief at Procter & Gamble in PepsiCo. And he was formerly the chief executive of the BBC's commercial operations. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But it just seems that the BBC, which is a public body, is now subject to very commercial interests. So David Clementi, who's the chairman of the BBC board, is a former merchant banker who used to advise Saatchi and Saatchi. So again, I'm not saying that he's there's anything wrong with him in particular, but there does seem to be a lot of big money involved in these public companies. And I think that's something that we need more assurance about. There should be more accountability about these public companies that are subject to such big financial interests. The BBC has been leading the panic about coronavirus recently. And with vaccines, there's a lot of money to be made. This really seems to be a potential area for big conflicts of interest. One conflict of interest that ended up in the courts was uncovered by uh, Joe Mon of the Good Law Project. And that was the tendering of contracts for PPE. This first came to my attention on Twitter because Joe Mon, at the time I wasn't even following him, but he just had this really long thread going about Ianda Capital Limited, a company which had won a £252 million contract to, to supply face masks to the Department of Health. And this was back in April 2020. But apparently Ianda Capital is a financial firm that specialised in currency trading, offshore property, private equity and trade financing. And it was based in Mauritius. Joe Mom did more digging and he found out that it was a deal that had been brokered by someone called Andrew Mills, who was an advisor to the Board of Trade. And according to Andrew Mills's LinkedIn profile, he'd been a senior board advisor to Ianda Capital since March. Oh, but apparently Mills stated that his position at the Board of Trade played no part in the award of the contract. And as things developed, the Ianda contract included an order for 50 million high-strength medical masks, but on arrival they were found not to meet NHS standards. This wasn't the only dodgy PPE contract. According to a profile on Joe Mom in The Guardian, one of the biggest PPE contracts went to a company called Pestfix, which had 16 members of staff, cash assets of £19,000, and a speciality in supplying products to prevent pigeons from roosting on buildings. It won a PPE contract for £108 million. 
And as it turned out later, Pestfix was actually awarded PPE contracts worth $313 million. This is a company concerned with pigeons that was worth £19,000 at the time. And then there was another contract, PPE contract, that was awarded to a friend of Matt Hancock. And this was reported in the Byline Times. It said that a firm owned by a family associate of the Health and Social Care Secretary, Matt Hancock, was awarded a government contract for the supply of PPE worth £14.4 million. So this firm, CH&L Limited, apparently has no website and one director, a Mr Chun Lei Li, who is a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine. And then in June 2020, Frances Stanley was appointed as the second director of the firm. And she and her husband, who are in the horse racing business, apparently donated £5,000 to Hancock's office in June 2019. So it certainly seems a bit of a murky business when a company with no website and one director gets a government contract for £14.4 million to supply PPE. I reckon this is just at the tip of the iceberg. That is my personal feeling and I don't have any evidence to base that on. But just the way that this is being pushed on us, there's definitely something very murky afoot. And it's a sad thing that real journalists are so thin on the ground these days to uncover these things. I'm so grateful that we have people like Joe Mom doing this kind of work. And there are also some brilliant independent journalists that are trying their hardest to uncover this kind of thing. But at the same time, they are being censored wherever they go. Two independent journalists, Whitney Webb and Jeremy Lafredo, have written an article entitled Developers of Oxford AstraZeneca Vaccine Tied to UK Eugenics Movement. And this article is very, very revealing, not just in the area of eugenics. And I find it particularly interesting that Whitney was interviewed by James Corbett on his YouTube channel recently. I saw the interview just after it was published. And then the next time I tuned in, I noticed that it had been taken down. Of course, it's on James Corbett's website at corbettreport.com, and I'll put the link in the show notes. What I find most interesting about this article is that it shows it shows that there are likely going to be big profits made from the AstraZeneca vaccine, despite the claims that the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine will be supplied on a not-for-profit basis. It seems that there are still going to be profits made by some of the people involved in the vaccine the article draws attention to the vaccine developer's private company called Vaxitech. And the two main developers of the vaccine, Adrian Hill and Sarah Gilbert, are directors on that company. And they apparently have a 10% stake in the company. Some of this information was actually originally published in The Times and then it was republished in This Week in an article which has now been archived. But again, I'll put the links in the show notes. So Vaxitech appears to be the commercial arm of this Oxford-AstraZeneca partnership concerning this particular COVID vaccine. Other investors include Oxford Science Innovations, which is apparently the largest investor, 
and Bravos Capital, which is a venture capital firm which was started in 2019 by Andrew Crawford Brunt, who's Deutsche Bank's global head of equity trading at its London branch. Apparently, he owns about 9% of Vaxitech. And one of the other investors in Vaxitech is Google Ventures. That particularly strikes me as a conflict of interest because Google owns YouTube and YouTube censored the video, basically. YouTube took down the video where Whitney Webb was discussing this with James Corbett. And of course, YouTube has been censoring any video that goes against the establishment narrative on vaccinations. And the fact that its financial arm has a major stake in this Vaxitech company just indicates the corruption and the potential conflicts of interest around this whole disease. I would very much doubt that this is the only occasion of this. This is one that's been in the press. Most of the mainstream press has ignored this whole issue, but it does appear to have been in the Times and in this week or the week before it was archived. And in this article by Whitney Webb and Jeremy Lefredo in Unlimited Hangout, So speaking personally, I actually think that the links that these two journalists have made with eugenics are a little bit more tenuous. I am surprised. I'm always surprised when I hear that the the Galton Institute is considered so mainstream when it used to be called the Eugenics Society. It was the former British Eugenics Society. And that does seem shocking to me that it's just managed to continue under a different name. And basically what they're saying is that Adrian Hill, who's the main developer of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, spoke at the the Galton Institute's 100th anniversary in 2008. The article also says that Elena Bochukova, who is a current Galton Council member and a Galton lecturer, previously worked under the direction of Adrian Hill at the Wellcome Trust for Human Genetics. But again, to be honest, I think this is fairly tenuous because obviously in scientific research circles, people are going to be trained at certain institutes and then they're going to move to other institutes. So the fact that someone who was trained at the Wellcome Trust then went on to the Galton Institute might just mean that they had a particular interest in genetics. I would say that that those links are fairly tenuous, but in the context of a global pandemic, which is being ramped up to scare people through the media into getting a vaccination. And these vaccinations are being coerced. We're being increasingly heavily coerced to have these vaccinations. Then it's really not surprising that people are asking these questions about eugenics and about whether these what might be really behind these vaccines. I'm not surprised that people are asking these questions. I tend to think it's more about big financial interests. It seems that the whole concept of these vaccines is that they will be useful for several months and then people will be expected to have a booster and that this fear is probably going to be ramped up again and again. There might even be new diseases that need new vaccines. But the goal of it all seems to be to push us towards a situation where not just children, but adults are getting vaccinated regularly and that we will have to have a passport, a vaccine passport, in order to prove that we are safe. And to me, that is a totally outrageous invasion of our privacy. 
it's a complete man- manipulation. It's potentially unsafe. Many of these vaccines have not been properly tested. And it seems on the surface to me to be very corrupt, or at least potentially corrupt, because it's coercing people to sign up to this condition where they're being, they might not be paying for the vaccines with their own money, but public money is going to be funding this thing, that's this booster that huge sections of the population are going to be expected to have again and again and again. And the few people that say no to it will be like outcasts. This is a totally illegal and corrupt situation. And I think if it's allowed to happen, things will rapidly get worse. We're already seeing in Israel that they're having these vaccine passports rolled out and that apparently forgeries are being produced. I expect that this will be sort of manipulated into a situation where people are saying it's completely insecure, there's forgeries around... So the next step will be to put microchips in people's bodies. If that's allowed, that is game over for our way of life as we know it now. I see bodily autonomy as sacrosanct. It should be up to each person what they want to put in their body, in their bloodstream. And over the last year, we've had increasingly invasive procedures. We've been subject to increasingly invasive procedures. Masks on our face, mandated by government. Cotton buds shoved up our nose right to our brains that can interfere with people's brain fluids. And now vaccines. And so far we've been able to say no, but under a lot of duress and increasing pressure to go along with these invasive procedures. And it's all really terrifying. Certainly, in my opinion, it's terrifying. Too many people have just been going along with these increasingly invasive procedures because it's too difficult not to. But seriously, if it gets to the stage of microchips, it is game over for our way of life full stop because there's no going back from that. I just want to say something else about the UK Biobank study. I have no reason to doubt that this is a really good initiative. I've been part of it. As I said, I've been participating in the UK Biobank since 2009 and I'm happy to do so. I'm happy to continue doing so. But there was an incident that disturbed me and I don't think it's so much a reflection on UK Biobank in particular. I think it's reflective of the way that people view scientists and the way that people view the establishment and the way that people in the establishment often have a kind of arrogance, almost a built-in arrogance. I think this blinkers people to alternative concepts After the results of the UK Biobank serology study on SARS-CoV-2 were produced, um, they invited all the participants to attend a webinar, just an hour-long webinar, where they were discussing the results. And it was an interactive webinar where participants were allowed to ask questions about the study. And there was one point about half an hour in where they were discussing the results that they'd found concerning different ethnic groups. 
And like many other studies that have been taking place, their results showed that black and ethnic minorities seem to have a higher rate of infection of COVID compared to white ethnic groups. They then said that follow-up questionnaires have been sent out to people asking how many people live in your household, what types of jobs you have, and do you use public transport and things like that. And they said that the data from those questionnaires would help them hopefully better understand why black and ethnic minority groups had higher levels of previous infection compared to white ethnic groups. So at this point, I scribbled out a question saying, regarding black and ethnic groups being more susceptible to infection, will you also be looking at vitamin D levels and, for example, whether these groups are more likely to have jobs that are based indoors? Because vitamin D is to do with sunshine on the body and that's why I asked about uh, jobs based indoors and then I added as a black person myself I understand the importance of sunlight and vitamin D levels to people with darker skin and vitamin D is hugely important for most people well for everyone it's just that it's just that vitamin D strictly speaking is not a vitamin it's a hormone And it's made by the effect of the sun on the skin. And the darker your skin, the more protective it is to sunlight. And for that reason, people with dark skin, the darker their skin is, living in cooler climates where there's less strong sunlight, they are more likely to be deficient in vitamin D. And that can have significant health consequences. I learned about this in 2012 when I went to a talk about the subject I've been taking 5,000 IU of vitamin D every day since 2012 because I know that as a dark-skinned person living in Scotland, I need that extra vitamin D because I might not get it from the sunshine. Just as conversely, I suppose, if you've got pale skin and you're living in a very warm climate, you might have to protect your skin from the sunlight. If you've got dark skin and you're living in a cool climate, then you've got to monitor your vitamin D levels very carefully. So I submitted this question, which was quite complex. I certainly was not just saying vitamin D can cure COVID or can prevent it. It was much more complex than that. Specifically, I was asking if they were going to be following up black and ethnic groups regarding their um, intake of vitamin D or their amount, the amount of sunlight they got during the day, during their jobs. At the end of the webinar, they addressed this particular question and Sir Rory Collins, who's the head of Biobank, said to Sir Jeremy Farrer, who's the director of the Wellcome Trust, and the Wellcome Trust provides the funding for Biobank. And he said... And, and J- Jeremy, a, a question for you. I certainly don't know the answer to this, but people are interested in vitamin D. Um uh, do, you, do you have any thoughts on, on vitamin D and the evidence uh, for for it being protective um, uh, against um, uh, infection or, or uh, uh, more serious symptoms? And to be honest, I just felt that Jeremy Farrer's response was completely dismissive of it. And he answered, he said... Yeah, I think I, I put vitamin D, uh, Rory, and, and the question I saw the question uh, in the category of a number of different things that have been suggested over the course of the last 12 months, which uh, may play a role either, as you say, in prevention or indeed in potentially in treatment. And, and I think the answer for all of those 
in my view, including vitamin D, is the case remains unproven at the moment. Uh, those of you who remember 2020 will remember a number of other claims, uh, sometimes even from presidents of some of the richest countries in the world, claiming all sorts of things worked or didn't work. Uh, uh, I think the crucial thing is to demonstrate. So basically, he was comparing vitamin D with some of the wackier strategies that President Trump came up with, just dismissing it in a kind of high-handed manner. There's all this talk about black and darker-skinned ethnic groups being more susceptible to the virus, kind of hand-wringing talk about these groups suffering and being victims. And yet the importance of vitamin D to health has been well known for over a century And it should be obvious to any scientist that the darker and the more sun-protective your skin is, the less natural vitamin D you're going to get. And yet, a question about looking into the amount of vitamin D that darker-skinned ethnic groups might be getting is just flippantly dismissed. I'm not trying to suggest that these guys are racist or eugenicist or anything. I totally, totally support the work that UK Biobank does. And I'm going to continue to participate in their research projects. But the thing that annoys me is that there's a kind of establishment dogma that tends to put a stranglehold on any ideas that fall outside the strict limits of establishment thought. And this seems to be increasingly the case as more big money and commercial interests get involved in funding and thereby influencing scientific research. Maybe there should be more clearly defined public-funded scientific research where commercial interests are not to be involved. I'm not sure what the answer is, but certainly the current situation leaves a lot to be desired. I think that COVID-19 is not science's finest hour. By coincidence, maybe it's not completely by coincidence because I'm sure I'm not the only person to see things this way, But immediately after I recorded this, I looked at YouTube and I saw that Lockdown TV channel had an interview with David Perks, the headmaster who publicly stated his refusal to make pupils wear face masks in class at his school. And what I hadn't realised before I watched the interview was that David Perks' school is the East London Science School. And in fact, he founded that school. He's a physics teacher. In the interview, he expressed some very interesting views on how the government is using science. If we zoom out for a moment, you are the founder of this school. It's called the East London Science School. It's based on principles of science, on critical thinking. You yourself are a former physics teacher. How has the past year been in that context? I mean, do you feel like the principles of science and critical thinking have been in evidence? I, I am still a physics teacher, by the way. I teach quite a lot of children. But um, I think uh, in, in terms of the way that science is used in the public d- discussion, um, I'm not particularly happy with, with the way it is used. It's used, in a sense, to kind of overrule politics, to overrule our decision-making, as if it's somehow above that. It isn't. Um, and I think... Uh, that the way we use science, the way we understand it, and the way we uh, interpret it is very much in the political domain. Um, and so I found it very challenging to see the Prime Minister defer to the scientists stood by his side to 
to try and understand the situation and what to do. Um, and I think that's breaking down as it happens at the moment. I think it's not as clear anymore. Um, because the decisions you make are decisions for people, right? And, and that's inherently a political decision. Um, and you use science um, to decide things at your peril because it's only one way of understanding the importance of whatever we're dealing with. Um, you know, the classic sort of thing is the scientists on one side and, and Rishi Sunak and the economy on the other side. They're both extremely important. So would you say that, in a way, the principles of science that you're trying to embody and get your pupils to take on, by standing out like this, you're trying to show them that critical thinking and thinking independently about the available evidence is the truly scientific approach. I mean, is that the, is that the lesson for this week? If you want to understand science, you have to understand what it can tell you and what it does and, and the, 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 the sort of field within which it operates. And uh, it doesn't explain everything. Right? If there's one thing you should know about science is the limits of what it can tell you. Um, and uh, I think... Uh, hopefully, we are learning that and beginning to sort of think, well, okay, science is extremely important, extremely useful, it's our best way of understanding nature and what happens in terms of this disease, right, as a, as a sort of biological uh, problem. But the impact of it, it's not, it's not the same, and that's a different thing. And so you need to put it into a context. Um, which is maybe more challenging, but it's, it's what we do. It's what we're about as human beings and how we see ourselves and, and how we solve problems. I'm particularly interested in what Mr. Perks says, because what he's describing, I think, sounds like the kind of technocratic system that General Franco used. And I really do not want our society to go down that path. I'll say more about that in a future podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to my podcast, please subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. If you'd like to make a comment, download a transcript or view the show notes, go to imaginingfreedom.co.uk. Thanks for listening.